For information on downloadable audio recordings about Marketing to Multicultural Kids, presented by Michelle Valdovinos, who is Senior Vice President of Phoenix Multicultural. Hispanic Perspectives on Advertising, presented by Liria Barbosa, who is Research Director of CNR Research. The Changing Latino Landscape, presented by Cesar Malgoza, who is Managing Director of Latin Force Group. Best in Class Hispanic Strategies, presented by Carlos Santiago, who is President, and Doreen Allen, who is Managing Partner of the Santiago Solutions Group. Segmentation by Level of Acculturation, presented by Miguel Gomez Weinbrenner, who is Senior Consultant of Cheskin, and many other downloadable presentations, visit our resources section at www.hispanicmpr.com backslash resources backslash hmpr hyphen products. That's hispanicmpr.com backslash resources backslash HMPR hyphen products or click on the resources button at the top of the hispanicmpr.com website. Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, hispanicmpr.com. This is Elena DelVal and my guest is Aurora Flores, who is an artist and public relations professional and a leading member of Son del Barrio Band. Today we will discuss Son del Barrio and how to reach you as Latinos with entertainment. Aurora is a Renaissance woman of the 21st century. A journalist, historian, artist, and cultural activist, she is the quintessential New Yorican born and bred in the city, studying at both Lehman College and Columbia University under scholarship. At the cutting edge of Latino identity, Aurora writes on culture and music for the Daily News and produces concerts and artistic showcases in New York City. Since 1974, she has published thousands of articles for mainstream and ethnic publications. Since 1987, she runs her own public relations and cultural marketing firm. Aurora cut her teeth in the music industry as the first woman editor of Latin New York magazine in 1973 and the first woman music correspondent for Billboard magazine in 1975, where she covered the Latin music and R&B scene. She was the first to write about Puerto Rican folk music in the worldwide publication, highlighting the Fiestas de Lois Aldea and an interview she did with Don Rafael Cepeda in 1977. She lectures at colleges and universities, cultural centers, and corporations. She appears with the late Tito Puente in the Edward James Olmos docudrama, Americanos, Latino Life in the United States, and can be seen on the Bravo documentary, Palladium, When Mambo Was King, as well as the accompanying film for the newly opened Smithsonian exhibit, Latin Jazz, La Combinación Perfecta, speaking on the history of Latin music. She wrote the foreword and edited the award-winning book on Latin music, Salsa Talks, A Music Heritage Uncovered. She teaches a History of Latin Music course at the City Universities of New York, CUNY. She gave up performing as a career to become a music journalist and was part of the production team that produced the first salsa music festivals at Madison Square Garden in 1976 to a sold-out audience of more than 20,000 souls. She co-produced her first recording with Al Santiago in 1978, producing a big band tribute to Miguelito Valdez, featuring Machito on vocals, Tito Puente on timbales, Jose Fajardo on flute, Luis Pericortiz on trumpet, along with many other masters of music. She still finds time to write songs, dance, and play the cuatro, ten strings, and pandero. Aurora, welcome. Welcome, Elena. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You are involved in so many exciting things, from activism to actually singing and songwriting and performing. How do you describe yourself? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I like to live each day to the fullest. I 
wake up in the morning and I always have something to do. There's some goal. There's something always that I have to reach for, work towards. And I guess I'm a person, I feel like I'm a woman of action. I always like to be doing things. I like to be involved, um, not only in my work, but how that work affects my community. Would you say that you're a public relations professional first and an artist next? Would you say that you're an artist first and a public relations professional next? I would say I'm an artist first. I started as an artist first. I have been involved with the arts since, uh, as we say in Spanish, since I had the use of reason. As a little girl, I used to sing. I would play various instruments. Um, I remember growing up in New York on Sundays, there were always uh, talent shows that would be produced in various movie theaters. My mother would take me to them, and I was always involved in the arts. And because I came from a very traditional, conservative Latino family, of course, once I got involved in music that was not classical music, then my father got very involved and didn't want his daughter involved in music and wanted me to go another way. And so I threw him a curveball and became a music writer instead. <laughs> and then from there I went into public relations. And public relations was a good way to be in a front row seat in the theater of life. And this gives you an unusual perspective from the, uh, the point of view of our audience because you are able to share insights with public relations practitioners and communicators, marketers, advertisers on some of your experiences as a musician yourself, as a performer, but you also understand some of the issues that make public relations what it is and where the two areas music and public relations meet. And so hopefully you can share some of the benefits of your many years of experience with our audience and tell us how to be better at reaching Latinos in the United States. Well, Elena, one of the reasons I went into public relations was in order to reconcile the very unpredictable lifestyle of being an artist with the very predictable lifestyle of being a public relations professional because during that time I had gotten married, I had had a child, and it was very difficult even as a journalist, a music journalist, and then a mainstream journalist to um, raise a family and continue to live the very unpredictable lifestyle of an artist, of a journalist, of being on call all the time, of having people call you at 2 or 3 in the clock in the morning with some uh, event that was going on or something earth-shattering that had to be covered. And I found that public relations at least had a more professionally normal lifestyle. In other words, I could go into an office and do my regular hours. Not regular, because, you know, in PR we have a lot of events we do. There's a lot of weekend work as well. But I found it to be more stable in terms of being able to deal with my family life than just being an artist or just being a journalist, which demanded so much more of my time. So I found that public relations was my way, at least, of reconciling these two lifestyles because at least in public relations, it also afforded me an avenue to still be creative, to still be able to write creatively, and still be able to creatively put together an event with creative themes that would directly impact on Latino communities and on American corporations that wanted to reach these communities. In other words, it was a wonderful marriage of the two, the creative and the professional, that would allow you to dedicate some quality time to your family. Yes. Yes, completely. And once I started my own business, then it was even better because I felt that I could control my time better. Now, if I understand correctly, 
your son is all grown up, and so you have a little bit more time to dedicate back to the arts. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely correct. As a matter of fact, my, my son is 25 years old, and he's getting a big kick of seeing his mom traveling all over the world and doing lectures on Latin music and performing. We performed in Toulouse, France last year, and um, I remember he called me and he said, well, aren't you the world traveler, Mom? And then he started laughing and said, you always wanted to do this, Mom, but you didn't do it because of me, right? So I asked my son, would you have liked me to have dragged you to concerts and rehearsals and be late, have you be late for school? And he, uh, he uh, thought about it for a while, and then he told me, Ma, thank you for not doing that for me. And I knew I had done the right thing when he told me that. How do you feel now that that he's grown up and he's has his own life, found his place under the sun, and you can go back a little bit to your passion? How is that working out, and are you still uh, enthused about the public relations side? I feel, Elena, very blessed. I feel that I did the right thing by my son, and I'm very proud of him. I'm very proud that at 25, he also has his purpose. He's been able to buy a home, get married, and have a great life and be independent. I think as parents, that's what we all want, to see our children fly and have their own lives. So I'm very proud of that. And the fact that I can now come back to what I originally wanted to do, but I feel that because I have this knowledge and experience as a public relations professional, I have a head start. I really do because I think that I'm able to look at my goals and have them fit into what's needed in the community, not only from an artist's point of view, but from a Latino professional point of view. And I think that will not only help what I'm doing in terms of my career, but also help the music as a whole. Because as Latinos, I find one of the things that unites us, even more than language, is food and music. You can never have a party in a Latino household if there's not food or music. <laughs> it just not isn't right, right? It, it's just not right. It's not a party. <laughs> it's not a party unless you have food or music. I don't care if you're from Guatemala or from Cuba or from Argentina. There has to be food and there has to be music or it is not a party. On that subject of music, you have of late been very busy with a new band, Son del Barrio. Would you tell us about that? Yes. Son del Barrio, yes, I'm very excited about our new group, our new CD, uh, Zon del Barrio is with a Z, Z-O-N, and it's actually um, a play on words that I came up with because the whole element of the son that people hear in the popular dance music of the Caribbean, the son is a genre of music that is found throughout all of the Caribbean. And then I made that son a play on the word zone, like barrio zone, because in these barrio zones is where Latinos collect and gather, where they struggle, where they work together, and then come together to find solace in the music, to find jubilation, to find a sort of cleansing with that music. So that's why I came up with the word barrio zone, or zone del barrio, as I called it. And, um, and it's been working. What I wanted to do was tap into that music the music that I grew up with, I grew up at a time that was very exciting here in New York City, and it was the golden age of the Fania music, the golden age of Latinos in New York creating a new style of music to dance to, to celebrate with. And that's being rehashed today, almost like the old R&B Motown. So you have a E Musica that bought the Fania catalog and is now reissuing a lot of that glorious music. And with all of that in mind, I wanted to put a group together that
would encompass a lot of that old music from that time. I grew up in a time when, when you went to a dance or when you heard musicians, they played everything. They played son, they played guaracha, they played mambo, cha-cha, plena, comba, merengue, bolero, tango, even paso doble. And you had to know how to play those genres in order to be a complete musician. Nowadays, I see everything being divided, like TV dinners, even music. So you got a plena band, you got a merengue band, you got a bachata band, you got a salsa band. And a lot of these bands I found were just mediocre, and they were just doing one genre of music. So I wanted to go back to when you would have a musical group that would do many genres of music, do them well, and appeal to the dancer, and have a message. And I feel that we've been able to accomplish that with Zon del Barrio, with this first CD, which... I've called um, Coltijo's Tribe, and it's a tribute to one of my early mentors in the music industry, Rafael Coltijo, who was the master of Bomba y Plena, who brought Bomba y Plena out of the ghetto and onto the salons and the uh, higher, higher class ballrooms, as they would call them in those times. And um, he was a person that I met as I was a music journalist at Billboard, and not only did he give me a wealth of information about the music, but he also helped me get in touch with my own roots, my Puerto Rican roots. He helped me um, understand where Bomba came from, where Plena came from, where the Hibaro music came from, and I was always very grateful to him, to Imael Rivera, and after they passed early in their careers in the 80s, I felt there was a gap especially in the Puerto Rican folkloric music. There was this big gap. And um, I created this, this uh, band and this music in tribute to those past efforts for bringing them into the 21st century. So although the music is danceable, you will hear elements of jazz. You will hear elements of R&B. You will even hear a touch of reggaeton. So there's a mixture there, a fusion from where it came from. And I'm very proud it's getting great reception. From Europe to New York, people are receiving the CD with such excitement. It's a new sound. We replaced brass with synthesizer, so the instrumentation is very modern. Um, I compose a lot of the tunes, and I sing those tunes, but then I was able to partner with one of the last living original members of the Coltijo Orchestra, and that's Sammy Ayala. He's 74 years old. He brought three tunes of his own, and he has this Frank Sinatra laid-back style of singing that's just so refreshing. And then I found this young sonero right here in New York. He's 22 years old. We found him, my husband and I, David, who's the musical director, we found him singing basically in the streets in a rumba, and um, he was 19 years old. And my husband trained him, gave him scale, ear training. The boy is unbelievable, and he sings. He sings and he improvises, which is something very unusual for the youth, our Latino youth of the community today. I mean, most of them rap, and that's a wonderful thing. They rap, they get their messages across, but they don't sing anymore. This boy, Hector Papote Jimenez, he sings, he improvises. And even though his first language is English, he's doing it in Spanish. And it's an incredible thing to see. And it's, it's very exciting. How would you describe the musical style of Son del Barrio? What would you call it? Our musical style, I would call it dance music. Dance music from the streets of Latin New York. Would it be accurate to call it salsa? Yes, you could call it salsa. You could call it um, Boricua roots music. Um, yes, you, you could call it that. It's salsa. It's a fusion. And that's what salsa is. It is a fusion of many influences. And 
and our music is a fusion of the influences of the Caribbean, of Cuba, of Santo Domingo, to some point Haiti, the Virgin Islands, and of course, Puerto Rico. I've heard you use the word barrio. It's part of the name of the band, and several times since we've been chatting, you've gone back to the word barrio as a very sort of a, the cornerstone of a lot of the importance of the, the origin of the music and the center of the community. Let's go back to basics for a minute, if you would, and would you tell us why is Barrio so important and what does it stand for in relation to your music and in relation to Latinos in New York, for example? Well, the Barrios are considered, I mean, in some places they're almost a, a it's almost a pejorative. It's considered a ghetto, a place where Latinos would, I guess, work towards climbing out of and going on to higher ground. However, I think, like in most communities, people have come back. They're starting to come back to the barrios, coming back to their roots. In New York City, El Barrio is very significant because El Barrio was the center of Latino life for Latino New Yorkers for the past hundred years. Although Puerto Ricans first started coming in by ships to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, the first real Latino community up here was El Barrio as early as the 1900s, right after World War One. I. I mean, it was so popular that the international the internationally acclaimed composer, Rafael Hernandez, a Puerto Rican, lived in El Barrio, and in 1927, he opened the first Latin music record store. Now, he would not have opened a record store if there was not already a demand. So there was a demand there. And record companies as early as uh, Thomas Edison was on a barge off the islands of Cuba and Puerto Rico as early as 1903, 1905, recording local groups and bringing them where? Back to New York. So the first recordings that were done in New York, starting between 1910 and 1915, were done by bringing in groups from Puerto Rico and recording them here. And a lot of them would stay here. Where would they go to live? They would come to El Barrio. And in El Barrio, during the 20s, 30s, and 40s, was just like a cultural corner. It was almost like what you would call Sevilla in Spain. It was culturally rich. It may have been poor economically, but culturally, I mean, it was the place where they had La Malqueta. Every Latino from all of New York City would go to 116th Street and Madison Avenue and Park and go to La Malqueta was the only place in New York where you could get produce from the Caribbean, where you could get jecao, where you could get your pork, where you could get platanos. Nowadays, you have a Goya aisle section in every high-scale supermarket. <laughs> in every upscale supermarket, you have a Goya section. Back then, you didn't. So you had to come to El Barrio for food and for what else? Music. The music was just pouring out of the streets. Everywhere you went, not only did you have, could you hear it from radios, but people had instruments in the streets. They played in the streets. In El Barrio, you had little social clubs that were representative of every town in Puerto Rico. Those social clubs hired live bands every weekend to play. And when you look back at history, it's only now that you have all these uh, catering places for weddings and funeral parlors. But back then, people were very poor. So when they got married, they got married in the homes, and they had a band in the home. And a lot of people didn't have funeral parlors where they would have wakes. They would have them in the home with ice on the body and everything, and um, there would always be a musician. Or there would always be music there to mark 
those times in our lives to mark the times of death, birth, marriages, celebrations. Music and food was a way of always marking that. So, yes, el barrio is very important. It is the womb of the Latino cultural life in New York City. And it really warms me to see it coming back. There's a gentrification going on, but there are just too many Latinos here in East Harlem for it to ever be totally gentrified. And it's good to see the professionals coming back to East Harlem. I mean, I did it uh, more than, I think, about 12 or 14 years ago. I had my company over in 29th Street and Park Avenue, downtown, and I moved back uptown to El Barrio. I said, this is where I need to have my company. Young people need to see what the professionals are doing, not to see them escaping and running to suburbs where we're not even wanted. We need to go and build in our communities. So that's what I did with the business, and then once my son was on his own, I felt that now I had the liberty to go back to the music that I wanted to make to performing, and to doing those things that I love. So going back to your original question, Elena, I feel very blessed because I'm at a moment in my life as a woman that I can work and live doing all the things that I enjoy doing, all the things that I'm passionate about, and that give me my reason and my goals for living. And I think that's what really anybody wants. Do you think, you, you mentioned a moment ago that there is a movement back to the barrio. How is the barrio today, and how does all of that fit in with the music that you're so passionate about and that we're talking about as a way to reach today's Latino communities? Well, music is like people. It's a art form. It's an expression that comes out of human beings. And as human beings change, so does the music. So I guess as people were evolving, they got to, there was what you called salsa romantica. And salsa romantica, what they call today, salsa monga, because that was a way of just focusing on a young, handsome male singer. And then they would have a formulated band, but the band had no personality. It was all focused on the singer, and it was a way of promoters and corporations making a lot of money. That has changed, and it's going back to what? It's going back to what they call la salsa dura, la salsa golda. Um, it's going back to bands having personalities, bands making music, there being a space in the music for soloists to solo and for people to appreciate that, not only for the hearing, for the auditory sake, but also in terms of the dancing, in terms of that expression between the dancers and the musicians. So I find that it is coming back to that very exhilarating type of music that was not just about the singer. It was about the singer, the music, the composers, the arrangers. So I find that El Barrio, is you, you're seeing that richness come back to life again. There are a lot of young people out there that are creatively expressing what they have learned in their environment, and they're doing it in a way that's very different. They're fusing English with Spanish. They're fusing rhythms like reggaeton with salsa. I mean, they're doing a lot of very, very creative things. And I see that happening back in El Barrio. People, are, it's no longer someplace to run away from. It's now a place that we can go to that was home and that we can now build up as a home. Again, rather than going somewhere else where we're still discriminated against, even as professionals. And at the same time, because of this revival and because so many people are gravitating back to the roots that you're talking about, El Barrio perhaps has also become transportable in a way that your music can carry it to wherever you are performing, even outside El Barrio and outside the United States. You were telling me earlier 
that you performed in Toulouse and that your act was one of the favorites. Mm-hmm. How are audiences responding to the music? How are Latinos responding? And, and how are other groups reacting to this new fusion of old and new? Well, Elena, I think that is a very pointed question. And um, I think people are responding in a way that I was even surprised, but yet grateful. Um, yes, we performed in France last year in Toulouse in front of more than 60,000 people. And I was very surprised at the reaction. Um, they had us come back for three encores. I mean, they would not let us get off the stage. And there were other acts there, but what they talked about it was that the surprise of the festival was Zon del Barrio and, of course, Oscar de Leon. I love Oscar de Leon. I mean, that to me is the ultimate showman. Oscar will always give you a great performance. But Oscar is one of those musicians from Venezuela who also does a variety of genres. What he does is he keeps his audience excited. The moment he gets on the stage, from the moment he gets off. And that's what we tried to do, and I feel that we were successful. Uh, we gave them, first of all, with Don del Barrio, they see three generations. They see Sammy Ayala, who's 74. They see me, who's in the middle, my early 50s, let's put it. And then they see our young singer, who's now all of 22. So here you have three generations. Then you see this band, it's very small, there's eight of us. You see this band with no horns, with synthesizer, but with this percussive engine, with playing all these polyrhythms. And when you do this music, especially Coltijo's music, there are all these rhythmic layers that you have to peel off. And I think sometimes what makes music exciting is not only what you hear, but the spaces between the music. And I have to tell you, in this music, there's hardly any spaces at all, emptiness. <laughs> Every single space is filled with a beat, a rhythm, a nuance, an accent, a melody, a word. There's something always going on. And I think that kept people excited. I think the vocalization they found exciting, the singing, and that we were giving them songs that were not just from the 60s and 70s, but that were as far back as the 50s with a brand new twist. So I, I think all those things contributed to our being called the favorite of that particular festival. And I'm always striving to do something new. What can we do that's new? What can we, we do that's different? And that's the challenge here. And so far it's been working. This is our first CD. I just got a review today from Italia, from Italy. We've gotten a review great review from El Nuevo Dia in Puerto Rico, Jaime Torres Torres, who is like the music critic out of Puerto Rico. We got a great review here in New York from the Daily News, from Descalga.com, and it's exciting, and I think it's exciting for the youth as well, because they're seeing a young man who can actually sing phenomenally well, who's doing music that they never even heard before, that maybe is the music of their grandparents. So to them, it's very new music. Do you and think then we have these messages that we're putting out there that are messages of the struggle of the community, the history of the community? Do you think that your experience and your knowledge as, as a public relations practitioner, uh, someone who understands the workings, the ins and outs of the music industry, and the engine that fuels it. And do you think that all of these experiences that you have under your belt have helped push Son del Barrio forward and make it the well-accepted CD and band that it's becoming? Definitely, definitely, Elena. I think, of course, my experience in public relations has helped to fuel this band because I'm able to come up with, let's say, um, uh, with taglines, I'm able to brand the group, 
I'm able to give it signage that it may not have had. Otherwise, I'm able to go into different communities and know who will like this music, who will not like this music. I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's helped immensely. Um, I can go to a sponsor and know exactly what the sponsor is looking for and what we can provide in terms of a musical uh, event what the sponsor will be happy with. So, yes, it's a win-win situation, definitely. But I think also my experiences before being a music journalist, being a music historian, all of those things help because I think as a public relations practitioner, I'm able to look at the community and analyze certain trends and see, maybe even predict certain trends that will be happening. That helps in the formulation of the group, in the choosing of the material, of the band members, of the outfits. It's all a package. And like any package, you have to look at it as a business. And I think nowadays a lot of musicians are actually looking at their bands as a business. I tell my young singer, Papote, once they put money in your hand, it is no longer a hobby. It's a job. And you have to take it as seriously as a job. That means how are you going to dress? What time are you going to get there? Um, oh, how are you going to speak to people? How are you going to sing? How are you going to dress the crowd? When is the moment that you know you can jump from the stage onto the crowd and mingle with the crowd and make them feel as if they are a part of us? All of those things are predetermined then. And um, it helps a lot because it makes everybody feel more comfortable when they go to play because they will know what to expect. And, and I think that makes it less stressful for everyone involved. And it helps me because I've got, with me, I've got seven guys that are all looking to me for leadership. And it's working very well. And they're great. They follow my lead. They, I mean, they really don't give me any problems at all. And I think most band leaders nowadays are looking at their bands as a business because it is a business. How would that you? That way you can manage it better because you're not leaving things up to chance. How would you define your target audience? You talked earlier about the importance of recognizing that this isn't just a hobby, that it's a business, and focusing your efforts the way that you do with a business. How would you define your target audience? Who are your listeners? Our target, our audience is very diverse, but it's primarily the core audience is Latinos, basically Latinos from the Caribbean and part of South America. When we do events, I always like to look at who is there. I always see not only Puerto Ricans, but Cubans, Dominicans, a lot of Peruvians, Venezuelans, Colombians, Hondurans, and then Mexicans. Um, so I, I look at that core base, and they tend to be more from like 25 to like 50, 55. So... Our core base is not very young, but it's young to middle age. And then outside of that, we get so many other people. I mean, when we were in France, it was, that was unbelievable. There were a lot of Spaniards, Colombians, French, Italians, lots of Germans, Swedes, and they love Latin music. <clears throat> Basically, this is the music that makes you dance. And for women... It makes women feel sexy. No women want to feel sexy, especially if you're a working woman. Especially, as you know, Elena, public relations can be very demanding and very intense in terms of your time. So when you do marathons of events and you're working these events and you haven't had a break, I find that going out dancing is a release. It's a cleansing. And for women in particular, it makes them feel like a woman, again, it makes you feel sexy. It keeps you in touch, not only with your body, but with basic 
primal emotions, and everyone needs to tap that, especially in this society, every now and again. We need to feel human again, not like we're just productive little bees in some cog, just working, 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 working. And I, I, I know most people in PR, we all feel like that. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. How does I find it... that this music, that's who my audience is. Those people that, that, those people that are overworked, stressed out, they come, they see a performance, they have to dance. They have to move. And it makes them feel joyful. How does having this very in-depth understanding of your target audience, because obviously this is something that you have a grasp of, how does that affect your marketing and communications efforts and the tools that you use? Because obviously if your audience starts at around 25 and goes up to their 50s, you have a cross-section that is multicultural in terms of country of origin, as you described a minute ago, different in terms of age, and probably different in terms of level of acculturation and language preference. Yes. That yes. would be a very challenging task for most anybody. How do you tackle that, and, well, and I, what tools do you use? I look at it like a corporation would look at emerging markets and how they use different tools to reach those emerging markets, as they call them. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. One of the tunes that we do on our CD is called El Negro Bembon. Well, we did an event for the Japanese Chamber of Commerce on one of their yachts, and they wanted a translation, a direct translation of all our tunes, the lyrics, now, when you have a, an audience like that, and they are giving you, these are their demands, they're giving you even before the event, well, you acquiesce. So I sat down, and when I got to a Negro Bambon, I said, how do I translate this for these people to understand? <laughs> the big list Negro? I mean, how are they going to understand that? And that's what it translates to. It, that's what it translates to. Anyway, I put then a description of the tune, that this tune was a hit in 1955 in Puerto Rico. Actually, almost 1954, like 10 years before the Civil Rights Act was signed into Congress in the U.S., Coltijo had a hit tune on the radio about racism. We took that tune, and not only did we make it into a modern style, still danceable, still about racism, then when my singer was singing, he puts in a chant in there about Amadou Diallo, the young black African man who was shot 41 times by police here in New York. Why was he shot? Because he was black. <laughs> so it still continues. So what we did was when I explained that, then at the day of the event, some of the Japanese folks there wanted to talk about that. And they loved the tune. And at the end of the night, they were all dancing. And some of them, they're so respectful. I could tell they had been drinking. They were feeling no pain. But three young men came up to where I was. I have a little table with my percussion toys. And they kind of asked permission if they could play with the maracas, the bells. And I said, sure. I gave them the maracas, the bells. They joined in with us. And it was, again, a cleansing, a celebration. They had a ball, and they were amazed that in 1955 someone had written a tune that was so danceable and so joyful, and yet it was about racism. So that's one way of doing it. We have another tune about domestic violence on the CD called Revolu that's bilingual. It's in Spanish and English. Um, the coro is Spanglish, and it talks about domestic violence, but also from not a point of view of, oh, this is a tragedy, how terrible, boo-hoo, but from an empowerment point of view. And Negro Bambon is also from an empowerment point of view. The chorus is, I mean, it tells the story about this poor black guy that was killed, and why was he killed? Because he had big black lips. Well, that's the metaphor for saying he was killed because he was black. But they do it, the, the chorus 
admonishes the killer and says, that's not a reason to kill anybody. And it continues dancing. It's from an empowerment point of view. It's not from a point of view hitting people over the head. So, and this is part of our legacy. Some of the first music that was recorded here in New York, some of the first plenas that they were recording, let's say, I think it was 1917, 1920. Well, these were American producers, and they didn't know what they were singing about. And a lot of them were singing about how, you know, the American government was in Puerto Rico, what was going on when they, when the Army first got into target practice on the island of Mona, before even Vieques. They sang about all those things. So music has been part of the documentation of our history. And I, I find that when I approach the music and the communities that I deal with, that's how I have to look at it. We have a repertoire of close to 100 tunes. So when we do different events, I try and gather who's the majority in the event. Is it more young people? Is it more older people? Is it all Latinos? Is it very diverse? If we have, we get a lot of the audience that's African-American. When we have that and I see that, I try and play a boogaloo. Boogaloo was the marriage between mambo and R&B. And what that produced was the baby called Boogaloo. So we'll do I like it like that, bang, bang. Oh, and they have a ball. Everybody gets into it. It's almost like they do a conga line. And they all start dancing. And what you want, what I want is that when I leave the event, I feel great, my guys feel great, and everyone's had a good time. They feel joyful. We all need to feel joyful. Otherwise, what's the point of working so hard? When you are reaching out to the different audiences, what do you do differently when you know that the audience you're going to reach is Hispanic versus when you know that the audience is not Hispanic? How are your strategies different when you're reaching out to those audiences, or are they? Um, they are different. One of the things that will be different if I feel that the audience is young Latinos who don't speak a lot of English and a lot of, uh, let's say they're young Latinos and then diverse audiences that are African-American, uh, mainstream audiences, then even from the moment I get on the stage, I will start speaking in English because they're not going to understand me if I speak in Spanish. So, uh, and sometimes I'll even ask the audience, do you want me to speak in Spanish? Do you want me to speak in English? Well, if, if I get enough hands to come up, I'll just tell them, well, I'll speak in Spanglish. And they all start laughing. And um, the thing is to get through to your audience. So I try and engage the audience beforehand, before we go to the event, so I know what kind of audience is there. I even ask the sponsors, and some of them are not even used to that. Oh, what do you mean, what kind of people do we get? We get a big crowd. And I tell them, well, how is the crowd? Do they speak English? Do they speak Spanish? How young are they? What's the profile? Do you get more women, more men? All of that has to do with how you approach your audience. If I have a lot of younger people, I address them in English, and I have our young man talk a little bit more. He gets a little shy, but he's coming out more and speaking out more. And when it's younger people his age, I see... I see how he is becoming empowered through the music. Because I told him, you're not just a singer, you're a communicator. You're communicating. You're communicating this music, this lifestyle, these messages, and who you are to all of these people. And he's gotten it, and he's gotten very good at it. So it will depend on the crowd. A lot of times during the holidays, we'll do a lot of performances for senior centers. Now, in those senior centers... The crowds are usually Latinos, older, and they speak Spanish. So there, I will speak to them in Spanish, and then most of the music we'll do will be from the older repertoire, stuff that they understand that takes them back to their youth. And they will sit there and cry. They'll sing the choruses with us, and they have a wonderful time, and it relives their youth, and they always dance. They always dance. I've seen ladies in walkers get up from the walkers, leave the walker to the side, and start dancing. 
Of course, the moment they finish, they go back to the walker. But once the music is on, they forgot all their aches and pains, and we took them back to a point in their life that was joyful. What suggestions would you share with our listeners who want to use entertainment or music or music and entertainment as a tool to reach Latinos effectively, whether it's by having someone as a spokesperson or sponsoring a campaign, any of a number of alternatives, what suggestions would you share with them about the response of the Latino community and its different subgroups to this tool and how to use it effectively while being culturally sensitive? I think uh, music and entertainment is one of the most effective tools that you can use when you are targeting an audience. When I was a young girl and I started with public relations right after I had my child, I still had very close ties to the music industry. And one of the first campaigns I did was for McDonald's. And I remember I'd bring in um, Tito Puente. I'd call him. He'd bring in his orchestra, and we'd have Tito Puente. One time we had a concert where we teamed Tito Puente with Lionel Hampton. We got a huge Latino and African-American crowd, both, at the same spot at the same time. It, that was just wild. That had not been done, and that had been in, in the 80s we were doing this already. We were doing it with political campaigns. Many of your very most, your most savvy political campaigners in the Latino industry will tell you without a musical spokesperson, it's hard to get the attention of the people. But you'll bring in someone like a big star in those days, like a Tito Puente or anyone, a Celia Cruz, and people would listen. They would come out. They would listen to that artist. I mean, the advertising world has caught on very quickly about artist endorsement. And we're doing it now more and more. I mean, and some of the artists get involved in causes and issues. Ricky Martin is involved in a very important campaign against uh, child abuse. Um, so all of the artists have their pet issues that they are close to and will work with. And I think when marketers look at that and connect with that, it becomes very powerful in terms of who is going to listen. Um, and then, of course, every audience has their favorites. I mean, I uh, we did an event for the Mexican community one time. Well, we mixed Mexican with the Caribbean tropical. We had a very popular Mexican canchera group. But then we brought in a plena group. And what was so interesting, especially in New York, was that the, the Mexican musicians were surprised that the Puerto Rican audience knew every single one of the songs that they played <laughs> and was singing it along with them. Well, I reminded them that the Mexican movie, the golden age of the Mexican movie theaters in the 40s and 50s here in New York had a huge impact on the Puerto Rican community that was here. And they knew all those songs. Those were their favorites. So there are ways of mixing those two things without offending anyone while creating a unified platform. That can be very, very successful. And it, it just, you need to analyze your audience. Who is your audience? Where are they coming from? What's the age range? What do they like? What do they listen to? And then you can partner it with what would be relevant for that audience. They're doing it today all the time. And I can tell you, especially with young people and even old people, they know the difference with what's real and what's not real. When they see these commercials for fast foods and they try and do a reggaeton and it sounds really corny, you'll hear the kids, they don't get into it. They're like, oh, that's corny. And all you have to do is listen to them. Have your ear to the pavement. I think that's very, very important going out into the community, speaking to the people there. What do they like? What don't they like? Going to the clubs, seeing what works, what doesn't work. 
if I'm hearing you correctly, Aurora, it's important when you're embarking on a campaign, whether it's national or local, that you do your research, that you talk to the folks out in the field, and that you match the celebrity, the entertainer, the music with the likes and tastes of points of view of the community so that it comes across as genuine rather than just something that was pulled out of the hat by someone who's locked in an office and never goes out into the community. They can tell the difference right away. They know what's real. They know what's not real. And you really need to gain the trust of the community, and you can only do that by going out there. Very quickly, because we're running out of time, but you've mentioned several times during our conversation, and I know from your bio that you've been very involved, in addition to all the things that we've talked about, as a community activist and involved in music and community activism. What role do you see that playing today, and how is that relevant to communicators who want to reach Latino audiences and be sensitive to the realities of today's Latinos? Well, when I started out in this business, I was considered a trailblazer because there were not a lot of Latinos involved in public relations. As a matter of fact, the first company I worked for, which was a Sachi and Sachi company, the only Latinos were light-skinned Latinos in the mailroom. They didn't even have African-Americans. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and it's been known for a long time that um, in the advertising world, in the ivory towers, advertising and public relations, one of the biggest secrets were that they really didn't want people of color in there. There were no, uh, no affirmative action. There was none of that. And I'm glad you asked that question because recently I was involved in... Um, in a panel discussion on racism and in public relations, and the report just came out from the Howard Journal of Communication. And it was written by a woman named Donalyn Pomper, and it's called The Gender-Ethnicity Construct in Public Relations Organizations Using Feminist Standpoint Theory to Discover Latina Reality. And all of that is a very academic title to look at racism in public relations, especially from the Latina point of view. I thought it was very important that this report came out now because they interviewed, there were about 20 of us of the, uh, uh, from the top uh, public relations agencies in the nation. And there were Argentinians, Mexican women, Cubans, all, I mean, it, it ran the gamut. And I think that was this is a very important report. And if we didn't have that in this country, we wouldn't have things like Hispanic Public Relations Associations or Black Public Relations Associations. We had to do that in order to speak to our communities, in order to tell corporate America, look, there are people that are professionals that deal in these communities that can use these same methodologies that are employed in mainstream public relations to reach these audiences. Um, activism is important. This country was built on activism, on seeing where there was an injustice and trying to correct that. And, of course, being born and raised in New York City and in the time that I was born and raised, let's say I'm a Latina baby boomer, which is what I consider myself, I grew up in a time when society was changing the world was changing, and I felt as a young people that I was entitled to my opinion and that my opinion, my thinking, my actions could change the world, could change my community. And it did to a certain extent. Um, we're living in very trying times now. And I think it's not just about having a job. I tell a lot of professionals, especially young professionals and young people that I mentor, if the measure of success is having a six-figure salary, then all of us would be outdone by our local drug dealers because they're making more money than all of us. It cannot be just about money. 
It has to be about our quality of life and how we are a part of that in our communities. As public relations professionals, we have a wealth of information to contribute and share. That's what we do. We do events, but even within those events, it's about information. It's about a message. What is that message? What impact is it going to have on our lives, on what we're selling, and on the communities that we're selling to? That's what I try and look at all the time. And when it comes to activism, that's what we have that's what we have to look at. What is it that we're selling? How are we selling it? What is the impact we're going to have? How can we make life better? At least that's how I was taught to think. How can we make life better? How can we make the community better? My mother always taught me since I was a child, it's not just about doing good in school. It's about how you are a member of the society. How do you fit in there? What are you contributing what are you giving back to the community? And now, you know, when I'm at the midpoint of my life, I think of all those things. What if I hand it down to my son with the group and this young singer that I have, Papote? I feel like I am in, I am, uh, how can I say, I am handing down the culture to another generation, not only of Latinos, but a slew of other people that love this music. So, and I have this young man who's handing it down for me and who's learning. <coughs> then I also have Sammy Ayala, the 74-year-old singer, singer, one of the seniors who's with us, like as a blessing, guiding us along on this journey. So I feel that activism is very important in the times we live right now. We need to be more involved in what the government is doing or not doing, what they're saying or not telling us. And I think by all of us doing that, we create a better world. And I do believe that we can do that. We've done it in before. We've done it before. Um, many people have been able to make enormous, enormous impact and changes. And I think as young professionals, as Hispanic professionals, have gathered together, we can all do that. But we have to have those values very clear. It's not just about money. Really, it's not. We're living in a world where, as I said, a 15-year-old drug dealer on a corner is making six figures a day, not just a month or a year. It, it, that cannot be the message that we're sending out to young people. It has to be more than that. Aurora, thank you for joining us and for sharing so many personal and professional insights. Thank you, Elena. Thank you. It's, it's been really my pleasure and my honor to do this. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Aurora Flores from East Harlem in New York, who is an artist and public relations professional and a leading member of the Son del Barrio Band, brought to you by Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com, providing you essential information on America's largest minority. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com. For information on downloadable audio recordings about Marketing to Multicultural Kids, presented by Michelle Valdovinos, who is Senior Vice President of Phoenix Multicultural. Hispanic Perspectives on Advertising, presented by Liria Barbosa, who is Research Director of CNR Research. The Changing Latino Landscape, presented by Cesar Malgoza, who is Managing Director of Latin Force Group. Best-in-Class Hispanic Strategies, presented by Carlos Santiago, who is President, and Doreen Allen, who is Managing Partner of the Santiago Solutions Group. Segmentation by Level of Acculturation, presented by Miguel Gomez Weinbrenner, who is Senior Consultant of Cheskin, and many other downloadable presentations. Visit our Resources section 
at www.hispanicmpr.com backslash resources backslash hmpr hyphen products. That's hispanicmpr.com backslash resources backslash hmpr hyphen products. Or click on the resources button at the top of the hispanicmpr.com website. Thank you.